That's all he wrote. Spring induced much pressure to produce some additional content. That prominent goal of writing something of note and worth fell apart. I ended fairly satisfied with the playful chaos of the baseball story, but the top-to-bottom value proved not good enough, and I knew that I had the ability within me to make headway. I wished to hold the momentum of its originality, but build and develop the story further. Same first-person character, Toto, throw in some more surprises that tickled to implement. The setting involved a Labor Day weekend extravaganza, an epic trip on the water to close out the summer. The result left Toto no longer wishing to canoe, which had a nice recurring theme consistent with the baseball story. With my trip to Mexico, the story lacked the attention required to be completed. Synopsis Toto is back for a stupendous finale to his summer vacation prior to the sixth grade. His lifelong plans of spending Labor Day weekend on a river are finally becoming a reality, but the town that borders those waters has an insidious past, and it is more than just what one sixth grader is prepared for alone. Toto's reluctant girlfriend joins in on the adventure to unearth the mysteries that have tormented the river water for over a decade. They hope to find out what really transpired on that Labor Day night ten years prior. Or is it all just sophomoric folklore? It's Not My Fault I Don't Canoe No More by Bradley Oliger Chapter 1 There's just something about Labor Day that bites me. Something disgustingly putrid about the properly named holiday that leaves me starting off school years with a chip on my shoulder. Sixth grade's Labor Day was the epitome of stenchiness partly because the day itself is the holiday that ends the greatest holiday of all, summer vacation. The other contributing part was the accumulation of all the events that happened to me on this horrid three-day weekend. I stood empty-handed with another activity I can no longer do, go canoeing. I can hardly stand the sight of rivers and large bodies of water at all, at all, and it is certainly not my fault Breakfast is already prepared. I sniffed it from the other end of the house. The aroma of spaghetti cried out for me. But first, I had to make a stop in the bathroom. I had to check my face for morning pimples. Close the door behind you, kid, said a plump figure, crouched down partially behind the toilet with the complete aisle seven of the hardware store strapped to his work belt. A pace beyond him lay shattered glass belonging to a smashed window. This... Plumber broke in to fix my toilet? Acid spurted through my nerves, and I wiggled my arms into the air, drawing away from him until the closed door defined my boundary. Listen, mister, I... I... I'm not going to hurt you, kid, he reassured sympathetically. I just need to tell you something, and I'll be on my way, be gone, like the leak in your toilet. I hate broken toilets. All the blood flared to the surface of his veiny face. He then let out three distinct puffs of air to lower his elevated heart rate and regain his cool. He appeared normal within a flash. Would you watch how loud you are? My mom is in the other room. She sees this, and you, and your missing shoes, and she'll call the police. She's already all worked up because two of my friends pooped in this toilet and bolted because it was broken. And I'll never get out of this place and go con... I swallowed the last part of the word. 
That's it, Toto. That's what I'm here about. Canoeing. I'm Jack's papa. Jack's papa? My pal Jack would provide oars for me on my little canoe trip I drafted. I had the canoe problem taken care of. Just the oar situation left me dry. But why was this guy here? Why was this guy here? Who? This guy. Why was what guy here? What was this guy talking about? What was this guy talking about? What guy? You, the plumber who broke into our house because we had a broken toilet, I replied. Out shot the crimson face, the hand dragging my shirt collar up to his face in the biting question. Who's got a broken toilet? You don't have a broken toilet. The heat kicked off from his face and melted my composure. I, we, did, did, did have a broken toilet, but, but you fixed it. That's right. Did have a broken toilet. Past tense. Did. Three more breaths and his mild complexion returned. The soft-spoken soccer dad's temper remained as cool as a frozen camel in Antarctica. And I'm not a plumber. I work maintenance at the library. Now, I'm here because Jack wanted me to tell you that you can pick up the oars at the Newman Spillway. They'll be underneath a washed-up flat wooden raft. One of those old Daniel Boone era type rafts. It'll be right there. You broke in to tell me that, Mr. Spalufioni? I asked. No, I broke in to fix your... your... goddamn broken toilet. The inflection of his voice shifted mid-sentence. What about the front door? Why didn't you use the front door? Because when I see a... <sighs> Three breaths. There you go. Easy, I said, patting his shoulders with the proper bedside manner. He continued. I have to fix it immediately, you know, kid? I shook my head, yes, but I had no clue. I just wanted him to leave so I could eat, get my things, and go. Enough dealing with psycho adults for one day. Well, I guess I'm all set now then, Mr. Spalufioni. I really gotta go eat. It's the last few days of summer vacation, and I want to make the most of it. I sighed a bit, feeling the depth of the words as they rolled off my tongue. I was not ready for summer break to be over. Summer vacation can't last forever, kid, he said while positioning a sausagey finger up to the bathroom doorway. You might want to straighten out that door, kid. Whoever installed it had no clue what they were doing. He then looked at me again. And take care of the pimple, for God's sakes. Chapter 2 I had one small problem with the whole arrangement, and like an old, nearsighted mathematician, I wasn't very fond of this small problem. And like a half-witted storyteller desperate to be funny or interesting, I used a poor analogy to describe the situation. And like a shrewd reader that has retained some self-dignity, you have stopped reading this long before these analogies, sparing you of the misery. The oars were at the Newman spillway, and my canoe planted where I stand now for 234 seconds, at the end of an unused dirt road, about a quarter mile upriver from there. All that I could think of, though, is how bad that I craved to get underway, finally, before somebody would show up and ruin the peaceful moment of pure sunshine and fresh water. Too late. 
A skeleton of a man, dressed in rags and sandals, came strolling purposefully up the five feet's worth of briar-free riverbank. He had a rusty bucket in his left hand stocked with whole flounder, but no fishing pole. A fisherman. Fishermen always, always ruin my solitude on the water. What do you want? I pleaded, tormented by the smell no longer of crisp green plants after a nice rain the night before. Instead, putrid, rotting fish filled the nasals, which too brought the obnoxious buzzing of entranced flies. He pointed to the canoe at the water's edge, and then to the water, insinuating a wish to help me take off. I stepped inside and secured myself on the front bench as his extra boost wedged me far enough out where I was controlled by the movement of the water. To reward his hospitality, I grabbed first an apple from my backpack, then changed my selection to a peach, recognizing his teeth had given way long before his body ever will. I tossed the fruit at him with a lazy underhand throw, but he made no attempt at catching the peach. In fact, he produced no response at all, standing tall and as motionless as a dock on the bank of the river. The peach bounced off his forehead and rebounded down in front of his toes. He gave five prominent blinks while still staring at me, then peeked down at the peach with a smile. He set it in his vulgar fish bucket. Like? He barked and then fixed on me again. The steady current finally unlatched me from the stillness of the bend in the river. I had officially set sail, free to explore the untainted side of life. Islands with berries, tree forts, abandoned libraries, suffocating valleys filled with green flora and incoming streams. This! A scream matradelloped from behind. I hooked around to witness the disgusting fishman with one hand cupped around his mouth, the other fully extended forward like an outfielder. From softball, not baseball. Baseball's lame. Following through on a sacrifice play to home, his expression showed anticipation. What? Splat! Straight into my forehead. I thought some giant owl flew overhead marking his territory on me, but quickly felt the slime of fish goo and peach fuzz slide down the right side of my face. A flounder fell to the ground. A high-pitched drunken roar of laughter echoed from the riverbank. I was indeed turned around already, though. The meandering course teamed up with a slightly forceful current and transformed me into a spinning propeller, repeatedly bouncing off from one bank over and down to the other. The crashing and spinning subjected me to lose track of my whereabouts, and the spillway came up quickly. I rebounded off too early with nothing to clutch hold of near my desired landing spot. The force of the spillway quickly shot me across with no chances of paddling back and getting those oars. I tied the displaceable bench seat to the end of eight feet's worth of rope, noosed it to a hole in the gunwale, and lunged it towards the shore in desperation that it would grapple onto something secure. The bench drugged back out two feet before finally catching onto the far side of the wooden raft and jerked securely. But the motion threw off the balance of the front of the vessel, and I spilled over the side. Only the strength of hand and arm kept me from drifting away, I kicked off from a submerged boulder and log-rolled lengthwise back into the unsteady canoe. Hand over hand, I brought in rope until I could grab hold of a gnawed-away willow shrub and make a trusty Boy Scout hitch. 
There, as Mr. Spolufioni had said 7,380 seconds ago, lay two oars stuck out from underneath the raft like the wicked witch's feet in the Wizard of Oz. I took 64 seconds at the water's edge to clear off my face of remaining peach and fish scum. I inspected the raft. I was amazed at how industriously the wooden raft had been assembled. Surely it could have fit about four full-sized kids with no problems. Made of eight small-sized trunks and lashings joined on both sides, the proportions came to be about six feet by four feet. I noticed something. Boots lay stuck in the muck to the right side. Only the upper cuffs of leather work boots showed above the top layer of mud. They belonged to Mr. Spolufioni for sure. I owed him for the oars. It would be a kind gesture to return the boots to him when I returned on Monday. Yet, seeing the entire section around them to be soft and thick, I knew I would be in the same predicament as he was before except my shoes would have to be left behind, too. I did not prefer that at all. At all. With the raised corner used as a fulcrum, I fit the handle of the oar into the boot and teetered the other end down. A sludge-like suction slowly gave way and broke free. I threw the first boot into the canoe and worked identically to get the second. This one with more resistance. Too much resistance. The mud was squishy like an donkey. Oh, my God. A mad donkey plunged right for me. Foam dripped like melting candle wax from its mouth. I cartwheeled into the craft for safety as the ravenous donkey quickly halted at the bank and guarded it violently, waving its lips and chattering its teeth together, making every sharp sound you would expect coming from a broken accordion. I reached for the second oar, but he countered my every move by whipping around and executing two bursts of machine-gun-like rear donkey kicks, each coming within inches of shattering my skull to mush. This was one pissed-off donkey. Once the ungulate finished eyeing me down and realized I no longer posed a threat for the moment, it bobbed its head a few seconds and retreated to investigate the second boot. The precious singular reason I remained there. No, not the sole thing I needed, the oar. You painin'! The donkey then clamped down on the boot with its foam-covered teeth and snapped its muscular neck up and over, releasing the boot from the mud and sending it flying beyond me like a kicked field goal ten yards until it landed next to the canoe with a small splash. I seized the muddy boot and stuffed it in. When I twisted back around to watch what he schemed next... I met with more untelegraphed, lightning-speed rear donkey kicks, those two barely missing. I needed a plan to outwit him. He trotted back and forth sharply like a hungry caged lion, bobbing his head up every third or fourth step as if to antagonize me to fight him one-on-one. -on -one. You wanna fight me? You wanna? Huh? I'll kick your... Donkey kicks. More of them. That's it. I grabbed a loose stick and thrust forward, giving him a stunner to the eyes. He tailed off, doing several bronco-like figure eights, dancing to his own broken accordion sounds. I made a bold approach for the oar with only the upper section of my knees anchoring my body. Oh, crap! He came wildly at me again, kicking everything around. Got it! I finally had custody. Wham! The hooves forced into the side, 
knocking me into the water, but I still held onto the shaft. The other arm fought the grasp of the rope against the current, and still, he executed rear donkey kicks from shore, knocking over the stump enough so the rope unwound. All but the tip. Seeing that his chance to kill me closed, he began pulling voraciously on the remaining rope to pull me back on land, until the last unchewed strands snapped by force. My canoe shot out sideways from the velocity of the spillway. I clasped the rope, being dragged, spun around, and jerked until I could get the oar and myself back aboard. One last hee-haw, a few trash-talking head bobs, and that became the last of that donkey. I was back on the pioneer path, charting the unexplored waters like Lewis and Clark, Bigfoot, Daniel Boone, and Frontier Francis. Chapter 3 As I approached effortlessly onto Plummer Island, I heard old Stogie barking, properly guarding my island, and properly greeting me. An old trickster he was, a dog with a selfish mind and no patience for the mundane, almost like a model for a kid on how to evade work and be happy and free. I had raised him from puppyhood, and he rekindled energy to the family. He became, I felt, my only best friend. Sometimes I wondered if he was my only friend at all. We molded a team and would forever be a team. I forever had his back, and he had mine. He died a day after that Labor Day from excessive heartworms. There was soon to be no more stogie. Though it seemed earnest work getting the fort prepared, a lot remained before nightfall. I had to set up a good cooking arrangement, surrounded by gathered campfire stones. I also needed to create an effective armament inside of my treehouse that overlooks the right shoulder of the river split some thirty feet up a perfect vantage point to witness and defend against what my destiny and appetite of eerie adventure had in store for me. Creating a well-stocked fighting position proved not always an easy project to carry out. Not always. It involved ammunition of bowling ball-sized rocks being carried up a skinny wooden makeshift ladder to a twenty-foot-high tree fort. Yet, I appreciated that Frontier Francis would have faced the odds and carried out the mission, and so must I. I hoisted a boulder up on my shoulder and worked hand over hand up the ladder. This was not working. Almost there. No! The boulder squeezed through my grasp after the twelfth step and plummeted down, all the way down. How about using your damn head? Shut up, Stogie. No, it wasn't Stogie. I found Heidi Bolcrum. I bet you wish it were Stogie. It's me, Heidi, you idiot. You know that there are other ways to do what you're doing, Toto, she said. Oh, yeah? What's that? She started laughing. I spidered down to find out what was going on. Heidi Bolcrum and I established somewhat of a kiddish flame and we hung around for some time now. We acted out the boyfriend-girlfriend thing, more for show than anything else. My older brother had informed me that by the time junior high starts, you must have already established your place in the social hierarchy. In order for you to succeed, you need what he calls a harem. To get a harem, explained to me to be a following of jealous girls, 
you had to come up with something that would make them jealous. That is where Heidi came into play. I bought her a fake diamond ring. The fake kind that scratches a mirror and costs over a thousand dollars. I procured it with some lawn cutting and birthday money at the local pawn store and gave it to her purposefully in front of all her girlfriends during lunch, just like my brother had instructed me. They all did the, oh, that's so sweet thing, and really bulged their eyes out when they gave it the scratching mirror test to check its legitimacy. She had no idea how fake it was. It worked, of course. I had no concern about being too popular, but it entertained to pull off a little harem scam as I had done, and it got my brother off my back about all that crap. On top of that, this tomboy proved fun to hang around. She had 48 Nintendo games, but not right now. What are you doing here? You don't even know why you're here. You don't know nothing about the story or what took place here or nothing. And besides, you are the dumbest boy I've ever met. You'd never make it on your own out here. I picked up the rock and heaved it on my shoulder. Boy, huh? I'm a man, I said and made up the ladder again. But the third nailed-in board busted as I crashed down, in true idiot fashion. Yes, boy, that's what you are, like the little stunt you pulled with my ring. I watched you buy it at a real jewelry store. You thought you were at a pawn shop and bought a fake, a fake that cost the same price as a real diamond ring, she grimaced. Thank you, by the way. I had it certified authentic and picked up the paperwork. Not bad for a cheapskate. And the only reason I played along with this poorly executed scam of yours is that it makes all my classmates jealous of me. I stared down at my dog with grief. I required an attack dog right at the moment. She gave a smug grin. If I did not know with absolute certainty that she could beat me up, I would have thrown her out in the wash by now. There had to be enough alligators or piranhas that would nibble away every bit of her skin. Nobody makes a fool of me on my canoe trip. Let's get the work done first, and I'll tell you all about the newspaper clipping me and my brother seen over dinner in Firelight. All right, Frontier Frank? It's Frontier Francis, I shrugged. She pointed an unamputated hand up to my tree fort. Now let's get these rocks up, she said, with no concern about how many imaginary bees under my command were stinging her neck big ones. Just five minutes alone with that rabid donkey and she would have been done for. Chapter 4 All right, Toto, do you want to hear about the true story of what happened here now? She inquired, somehow not filling up with air and popping like a grenade as I willingly hoped for, although the campfire light flickering off her face while she spoke made it very easy to imagine her face on fire. I know that story already. Three hundred years ago, a steamboat passed this very area. I ate up the remaining hobo stew of ground beef, onions, and potatoes that tucked deep within the ball of foil. My morale slowly swelled back up, but there were still so many sharp objects I felt needed to jab into her shins. And a bunch of pirates attacked because of gold on the boat. And when they set it on fire, Frontier Francis came and saved them all. So now... It's said that on Labor Day weekend, when this all happened a long time back, you can catch a glimpse of the boat going by and see it in flames. 
and just maybe catch the ghost of Frontier Francis saving them all like an untamed hero. Well, I'd hate to break it to you, Toto, but there's no such thing as Santa Claus, Bigfoot, the Easter Bunny, Leprechauns, the Tooth Fairy, and Frontier Francis. Francis is a car mechanic's name, not a woodsman from 300 years ago, all right? Now here's what was written in a newspaper clipping that I snatched off my older brother's dresser. Do you know that little shack that's down away along the side, like an abandoned library or something? Well, just to the right of that a bit, there are the remains of another building that burnt down ten years ago, a bowling alley. According to the article, two morons promoted a fake boxing match there, but it was incredibly unsuccessful. The town folk didn't take kindly to that and gave chase with torches. The boys tried to flee on boat, but word is their craft caught on fire from one of the fanatics and set it ablaze along with a bowling alley. That was the last they saw of them. So, every Labor Day since, there are rumors of this failed fake fight and fire happening over and over. So, you're trying to suggest that Frontier Francis was an auto mechanic? They didn't even have cars 300 years ago, I queried. I'll bet you that he threw a flaming spear at the boat and hit the engine and it blew up. No such thing as Frontier Francis? Ha! Ridiculous! Whatever it is we're here for, the key thing is to find adventure and have fun, right? She asked. That's what we promised each other when we kissed on the lips, right? Ooh, why did she have to point that out? Right? I slapped a hand to the forehead. Right, I moaned. Despite mentioning my only regret so far in our little boyfriend-girlfriend arrangement, I agreed with her thoughts, mostly. Campfire-cooked food made me forgiving, I realized, and what she said seemed true. What's the point in being angry with somebody when they know how to start campfires, not overcook a hobo meal, keep me from being afraid of the dark, and devise a pulley system so I didn't bust my back stockpiling my ammo supply up in the tree fort? Imagining her in a night suit out in the middle of an open field during a lightning storm seemed a little excessive anyway. And besides, I had to prepare my mind for how to overcome the unknown. I had to be focused like Frontier Francis. It's about time we man our battle stations, don't you think? Chapter 5 What the heck is a fake boxing match anyways? I weighed out loud. She had a hard time taking her eyes off the water below, but handed me a flyer. Well, apparently, they took pictures of themselves in fighting stances and hung flyers all through the area. For some idiotic reason, they expected people to show up to see what happens. Pretty pathetic. At a bowling alley? Why a bowling alley of all places? I hated being stupid. Yep, that was my thought, too. I looked at the flyer with two disheveled figurines in awkward positions. Idiots! Quiet. Mm, sorry, so uh, uh, what do we do now? Well, if that whole thing replays like they say, I figured on spotting the boat up from here and then following them with your canoe to where the terrible event took place. It seems so mysterious that I can't help but wonder so much about what kind of people it would take to do something like that and how they'd get away with it. 
Maybe we could help the victims somehow. Help them? They're already dead. Shh! She paused with an ear out below. She had heard something. Stogie's growling down there to let us know something's over on the other side. We've got to go check it out, Toto. All this imagining her being chewed and struck and maimed had my imagination overworked. At this moment, it felt not out of reach to conjure up what horrendous things might hack at us if we investigated into the oblivion at nighttime. Come on, it's probably somebody following us. Probably your mother. Your mom called my mom. I guess she found out about the fake number you gave her. I know that she's looking for you, but I doubt she'd be here, though. My, my mother culture. Come on. With arms and legs interlocking snugly around the fireman's pole, she slowly descended with a spring landing at the bottom. She quickly disappeared into the brush, and I followed. I could almost envision the silhouette of the trees being my mother with a giant burlap sack at the bottom of the pole, waiting, waiting, waiting. An evil grin on her face, tree after tree. I saw her disgruntled outline. It's not your mom. It might not even be nobody. I pressed on as the patch of shrubs turned to thick briar. Movements were like passing through prison concertina wire. It called for some up and overs as well as down and unders. Thorns and vines fanned out everywhere. Up, step, lean over, balance, other step. Squat. My foot came down on an unruly frog, but I could not raise my foot for it would upset the balancing act. Squat. Shut up, frog, I whispered, finally lifting my sympathetic foot. My balance ruptured, just as I knew would happen. Whoa, whoa, no! Into the mangle of vines and thorn. The more I fought, the more I imprisoned myself. The biting pain of thorns hitting every exposed nerve. Yet still, I resisted the urge to wail. I became semi-safe again. No, Mom, no, get away! She towered right in front of me with the window cleaner and a rag. Get away! I twisted and tugged, made every sharp move my suspended limbs would allow, only to be gashed deeper and deeper by spiny vines. Ah! The windows are filthy and you're gonna clean them all day long. <laughs> Mom! I'm... She wasn't there. I hallucinated again. But now came high-pitched screams and wails, closely in front. Oh, no. I accidentally set off the signal to Heidi and spooked our recipients too early. Too late. A silhouetted blur came at me violently, each step with a splatting of sludge, straight toward me. Please, no, stop! <sighs> cried the blur, right into the mess of impenetrable vines only two feet away, stuck and stung and screaming like a baby. Stay away from me. I just need some space to sort things out and get my life back together. I'll do it. I really probably will. Another shadow came bursting through the low brush. Mr. Doth, Mr. Doth. I recognized Heidi as the one speaking. Mr. Doth, what are you doing here? She asked, shining a small flashlight onto the obscure shadow. All the stirring and commotion calmed for a second, long enough to see my baseball coach, Coach Death. Paler than his pigment-deficient complexion normally revealed, he looked outright sickly and diseased. 
He was suffering from something, to be sure. He always, always suffered from something. Go on without me. You're, you're too good for me. Please, I'll only hold you back in life, he begged, callously melodramatic as usual. Settle down, Mr. Doth. It's Coach Death, not Mr. Doth, I added. Listen, Mr. Doth, we're not going to leave you nowhere. You're coming with us. He started sobbing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I will not ignore you this time. I'll focus more on us. She freed him enough so he could wipe his tears. A true idiot. He's not coming with us. This guy's a disaster. Every day it's something new. Watch. I turned to Coach Death. Coach, why are you out here? Are you out here writing a Dear John letter? I was out here crying. See? Why were you crying? I had a bad day. Such a, a terrible day. My team lost by five. Many errors. Of course you had a bad day, I said. No, today was, was worse. When I woke up, I devoured chocolate ice cream, going through what went wrong with every player I coached over the years. Why they had a sub-400 batting average. Why so many players I put at third base can't make a throw to first without a bunny hop. Why on a 3-0 count batters still swing on the next pitch. Um, can we? Why outfielders never call I got it on a pop fly in the outfield. Why players never try to steal second base on a full count with two outs. I then looped... We are the champion for two hours. I started thinking, maybe I'm not into coaching. Maybe I should be an umpire. I've never really enjoyed coaching anyway. It's just something that people expected of me. At first, I felt adequate. I buried my face into my hands. Like I was doing the prudent thing. I just look at my teams, the players, and I just don't feel like they're coachable to me. I think about all the ice cream I've paid for my players after games over the years. I played such a fool. Why didn't I make them pay for it sometimes? Go Dutch? Why do I need to pay every time? Because I'm the coach? Society expects the coach to buy the ice cream. What does society even know anyway? They tell me I should get a tattoo of my team, and then things fall through, and I'm stuck with a tattoo of players I don't even coach any longer. But tattoo parlors can't fix the names, so I just have black rectangles all over my body. What the hell? I exclaimed. Shut up, Toto. Go on, Mr. Doth. Let it all out, said Heidi empathetically. I've tried getting a puppy for me and the team that hasn't ended well. I've written them letters, but they haven't written back. I feel so madredeloped. What kind of monster doesn't write back a letter? It only takes a few minutes. She put her arm around his waist and escorted him over to the canoe. Maybe you ought to take some time for yourself. No coaching, no umping. Figure out what you want in baseball. Figure out what the perfect player is for you and stop settling for selfish players like Toto. Now let's go find ghosts, all of us.
A full smack came from my hand pressed against my forehead. This exploit was dissolving like his coaching life. This is my Labor Day weekend. This is my story to brag of. Making up for every bullfrog or garter snake I let escape. For every beehive I feared too much to pee on. Coach Death is not going. He makes up words and has no respect for the English language. Don't you have a former player to call then quickly hang up on? Perhaps, he replied. What about watching more of those old home videos of the games? I burned all the tapes. I wanted a fresh start. He's not going. This is my canoe, and I say that you stay here. Heidi stepped in between us. This is not your canoe, and... Shh, get down. A quick yank took Death and me both to the ground. Look, she hissed behind an extended finger pointing upriver. It's a boat. She was right. A boat puttered slowly and eerily underneath whatever moonlight could sneak through the overhanging tree line, with a small cabin up front and plenty of room in the aft. There showed not a visible being anywhere on or inside. Come on, guys, let's follow, she ordered. Chapter 6 The current seemed to drag us slower than that which had taken me to the island, but once two oars started digging instead of one, the strokes matched and the speed raised. I used the oar with a dual purpose, one, to propel, two, to splash death. Keep going. I deserve it, he repeated like a raspy broken record each time. I did not wish to think up bad thoughts about what I felt should have been happening to him, because I knew they would be in no comparison of what self-torturing images he himself brainstormed. All right, steer off towards the left side, said Heidi, obviously acting off script of a premeditated plan. No, no, I got a better idea. Let's go see what they're up to. Toto, dig your oar in and out the rear to slow us down. Try to guide us towards the right side. With her smooth strokes off to the front left, and me acting as a steady rudder, the canoe veered right. Death's face showed suspense and drama when none warranted. It proved an easy embankment. Coach roped around an uprooted pine. Death smiled at his work and upon us. He then looked up at the illuminated sky. I bet that moon's as big as Kansas. Shh! Heidi cut out about 35 feet of rope that we had used from our pulley system on the island, tied it to the end of the canoe's line, and lunged it downriver from the front. Let's go, she said, easing into the swift current and keeping a cautious grip on the rope. Hand over hand, she shimmied the line followed by death and I. We maneuvered with stealth towards the ghost boat. Just like ninjas, I whispered to death, but the words startled him. No, he croaked and let go of the rope. He tried to jerk away from my lending hand, but short of freeing himself, he tugged me from the line. The current flowed strong, leading us straight for the tail of the ghost boat at an unmaneuverable speed. Oh, crap. This is gonna be loud. Yank! Heidi's hand clasped around my wrist with a motion of me and death aiming to move on and crash into the aft. She nearly ripped my arm from the socket. Water ramped off my forehead, into my nose, into my eyes. I could not see, 
but I knew we were easing the remaining ropes slowly until our backs felt fiberglass and Heidi's vice released. We all held onto the motor. Heidi and I took a moment to catch a breath and stare down death with disapproval. I'm sorry, he murmured up to my ear, but it scares me something else when I hear other people whisper. I motioned to speak softly, but death crinkled his cheeks, posturing fear, and Heidi's hand cupped around my mouth. I yanked it away. What are you doing? I whispered. Death heard his cue to slam his head against the boat, creating a revealing thud. Instantaneously, we all pressed inward, making ourselves as skinny and unnoticeable as possible. All I could see through my upwards peripheral vision displayed one shadowy head shape peering over ever so slowly, as if a horror theme played in the background. No sounds produced. No voices chattered. The shadow dissolved from view, but we remained motionless for a safe many moments. Heidi then pointed to her eyes deliberately, followed with a slicing, open-palmed, no-more gesture. My lips puckered up. Oh. She sealed my mouth swiftly again and twitched her face towards death. She was right. He would have flipped out if I whispered. Heidi fingered out a bit of engine grease and made marks on the panel in front of death. The marks formed the words, Stay here, Mr. Doth. She worked herself inside of a removable bench cushion with just enough of a crack opened up to furtively view the remaining part of the boat. There was barely enough space between her, myself, a gas tank, and a few life jackets. With a squeeze, our observation post had been established. The breaths became shallower, and sweat leaked from my palms. Something isn't right here, said Heidi. I can't help but feel that this is all real. Her gaze fixed on another gas container, stationed directly in front with torch-like rods lying next to it. There was one of those fake fight promotional flyers on the deck of the boat. Remember what I said about the article? I paused to remember. The guys fled by boat and burned alive. Supposedly, the whole boat in the bowling alley burnt down too. It seemed this was happening for real, for the first time. If true, they'd die horribly by fire. Even this boat would become in flames too. This proved the worst place of all to be this weekend. Involved in the recreation of perhaps the most sinister event ever in the long-standing history surrounding this town. We really ought to get out of here, Heidi. She nodded her head. She and Death slipped out the back without a response and waded to shore. I laid on the beach to shake off excess water. The other two pressed around me. The dilemma that blocked me from speaking to Heidi before posed a problem yet again. I lacked a way to read her mind. I needed communication. We've got to save whoever's going to be on this boat, she hinted before I could catch her. But death stayed calm, hopefully, frozen from the mixing of air and water. She pointed to his ears, and with a squint, I determined each ear had a plug sticking out of them. Don't worry. Fix that prob. Now, you move to the abandoned bowling alley. See if you can get them out of there. Me and Mr. Doth will hold off any other ghosts, okay? And with that, she gave me a hurry-along kind of scoot and left with death. Get them out of there? For what? I was left with abstraction, nothing to work with. 
If it were a ghost I sought to warn, then what kept them from bashing and slashing me with sharp objects or haunting my soul? The wind picked up, weaved through the trees, and took me stiff for a moment. I heard more sounds, sounds of bowling balls breaking pins for a glorious strike. My imagination killed me. I had to take action, so I approached the abandoned bowling alley. A light grew visible from inside. The closer I drifted, the more apparent how perilous this mission became. I itched up next to the window. If I looked, there could be no telling what hideous sacrifice I would be witness to. Words would be written in dog's blood. Clocks would spiral backward. Get them out of there? That's the last thing I'd want to have happen. With a gelatinous movement, I peeked. Whoa! Hey, 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 stop! Executive Editor's Note Gregor Morksley This story went way over budget, word count, made-up words, grammar errors, and has nothing to do with the flow of this memoir. Shut it down. The Unfinished End Another story fell prey to word count budget restraints and executive editor shutdown orders. Writing about a riverside theme with boats and islands can get fairly wordy. This also became the second story featuring Toto and Coach Death, so they demanded higher salaries. In actuality, the steam eventually wore off, and the story became too long for the whole concept. Yet, the story was mostly fun to write, explaining why the length surpassed the target. A silly, gimmicky flow would be its undoing.